I have so little to do in this episode, I figured I gotta be a wise ass up front. This is all gotta be in. What are you not a wise ass? <laughs> well, it's better than being a dumbass, right? Oh, yeah. No dumbasses here. Hey, Prague fans, welcome to another episode of the Ultimate Prague Podcast Project. My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by Lee and Craig. We are three friends and Prague aficionados here to talk to you about the history and the craft of progressive music while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions, of which this episode has many, of the music and the personalities that make this genre so great. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show, or you can contact us the old-fashioned way at Gmail at UP3Show at gmail.com. Isn't it funny? Email is the old-fashioned way of communicating. <laughs> I'm going to I'm have to redo the whole intro now. <laughs> now I'm leaving that me. in, man. That was good. <laughs> if you can't get enough of the show... Don't forget that there's a little button that says subscribe. You can hit that or you can catch our homepage at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcast. Please take a moment and leave a review, leave a rating. This helps the algorithm know that we're a show worth promoting and helps other folks find the show. Now that I'm through the intro... Should we get a P.O. box? You know what? I think the Pony Express is still doing service here in Colorado, and maybe we can get them to ride their horse by our There you have it. Yep. In tonight's episode, we are discussing the music and career of prog metal stalwarts Dream Theater. But before we get into that, let's check in with Lee and Craig. I'll start with you, Lee. What have you been up to since last time? Oh, just working like crazy. Haven't been able to get in the studio, except my daughter asked me to accompany her. She's going to try out for a musical. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, she picked a piece of music, and she asked if I would get the sheet music and learn it and play for her. So I said, yeah. And hopefully soon I can uh, get back in the studio and work on some tunes. Nice. Which musical? Cinderella. Oh. But she is trying out with a song from Shrek called I Know It's Today. Cool. So it's a pretty cool song, yeah. And the only other thing is I've been working on putting some of my older material on Spotify. Nice. Yeah, I'm kind of working at one tune at a time, so I'll let you know how that goes. Cool. Make sure we know and we can share with the listeners uh, where to find that. Yep. What about you, Craig? What have you been up to since last time? I just got back from a week in New York, hanging out with my young young adult adult daughters. Young adult sounds like 14. They're older than that, living alone. And I uh, actually saw Wicked on Broadway. Nice. I've always wanted to see that one. I've always wanted to see that one, too. The Star... The bad witch, the green one, kicked ass. Yeah. Did so much partying with the girls that I got home and I was feeling the effects to the point of I got a COVID test today because I thought I was dying. Um, <laughs> they're like, no, you're just a big wuss. You're looking a little like the green witch. Dude, I'm feeling kind of like the green. I, it's, it's been a rough couple of days. <laughs> I, I had to leave meetings early multiple times this week. <laughs> and it's probably best that I don't have a wireless headset. There's a lot of shows coming to Denver the week after the cruise, which is going to be a little tough to navigate. 
the cruise is going to be tough to navigate? I mean, I hope they hired a professional captain. I think they have someone th- that does that. I'm pretty sure they could go in circles in the bay and we would never notice. No, yeah. we'll just be at the concert. <laughs> Look, kids, Big Ben, Parliament. Just be listening to music. It's land. Time. It's water. It's land. It's water. It's uh, like, well, you've been gone a week, but I want to go see Steve Hackett or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's been pretty busy for me, too, on my end. I think for those of us in our industry, it's just crazy times. We work from home all the time, and that means literally all the time. But I have started trying to reread some stuff uh, that I enjoy. We have talked about we're going to go see Dune as a group together. And yep. so I reread Dune, and now that led me into uh, rereading the Hyperion Cantos. Was Hyperion the one written by Dan Simmons? Yeah. He's from Longmont. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a really great book series. That's a great couple of books. I didn't really start getting it into like my third reading through it. Mm-hmm. Like it takes a long time, I think, well, at least it did for me to really start to grok everything that's in that series. Yeah. Very dense, very readable though. Really good books. And then through another podcast, I found out about this book called Freewaytopia, which is the history of freeways in LA, which is actually a lot more interesting and nuanced than you might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have some surgery to do on a couple of uh, 49 key keyboards that I talked to you guys about. Right. Between the two of them, I have one working one and I just need to uh, fix it. It's kind of been what I've been up to. Cool. So what have you guys been listening to since last time? Listening to the new Deck Burke. Mm. Good stuff. It's funny, you know, when I first started getting into Frost, Lee used to talk about John Mitchell and I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's, I can't identify any of these guys. Now it's like I could pull John Mitchell out of a lineup. I could pull Deck Burke out of a lineup. Yep. Very, very distinctive songwriting styles. Yes. Guitar playing styles. Mm. But really enjoyable. Definitely a great Deck Burke album. How about you, Lee? Mostly been listening to the new Dream Theater, A View from the Top of the World, which we will discuss later in this episode. So stay tuned. Yeah, I think that's mostly it for me, too. If I wasn't focusing on Dream Theater, quote unquote, for work for the podcast, I was listening to just a smattering of stuff from my collection. So nothing really exploratory this month. But we'll talk about the new Dream Theater. That'll be a thing. Yep. So anything news wise or new releases that you want to make sure listeners know about before we get into the rest of the show? New Dream Theater is out. A view from the top of the world. Mm-hmm. North America tour is delayed. We don't know till when yet. Riverside just released a new song called Story of My Dream, celebrating their 20th anniversary. I was listening to it today, and it's really good. Mm-hmm. Tears for Fears has announced they're going to make a new album. Seriously? How? Do- <laughs> yeah. New album called Tipping Point, their first album in 17 years. Hmm. Nightwish has announced a North American tour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Symphony X and Haken have announced a North American tour. Vola has announced they are supporting Starset on a UK tour. And... I'm surprised this slipped by the two of you. There is a new Peter Gabriel solo album coming soon. What? How did I miss this? How did I miss that? I think it's his first album in like 20 years. Huh. Is that right? It might be. Do you have any details on it? Like who plays on it? or? That's literally all I know. He just announced that he's been in the studio working on about 17 new tunes and literally said, closer than you think. Well, listeners, you're not the only one finding out about things for the first time when listening to this show. <laughs> and that's kind of the big ones I know about. Awesome. The big one for me is the new Star One album that's going to come out. So the album is entitled Revel in Time. It'll be available next year. Pre-orders start December 17th of this year, so December 17th, 2021. 
Just this past week, they released the first single called Lost Children of the Universe. And be still my beating heart, it has Roy fucking Khan on it. Yes. It is a great track. I am still holding out hope since Tommy Karavik has become a big vocalist for Aryan that we will finally get that mashup of Roy Khan and Tommy Karavik, the former Camelot singers. The single is really great. If the rest of the album from this single and the snippets pan out, this is going to be the Arion album that we wish we had gotten last year. Right. Other than that, it feels to me like we're kind of in a dry season for new releases. We'll see how the rest of the fall and winter pans out into the new year. And Robbie Steinhardt is about to release a new posthumous solo album. I'm very excited about that. Robbie Steinhardt is the original violin player for Kansas, also did a lot of the vocals, some of the songwriting. They're releasing this album again. It's, it's a posthumous album, but it has a ton of people on it. I was going to say it's almost like an Ariane album, but that's maybe going too far. Because <laughs> everything revolves around Ariane. <laughs> cool. So without further ado, let's go talk about Dream Theater. For the uninitiated, in this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the juggernauts of modern progressive music. Even if you don't care about the subgenre of prog metal, chances are pretty high that you've at least heard of Dream Theater. Here I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to the band, mostly because I think it's interesting. But I hope that you as a listener can take away that there's a certain consistency to this band. And as I thought about this, I came up with this metaphor. In Buddhism, there's this concept of non-self. If you start picking the pieces of a car apart, you can never find the one singular thing that is the car. It's all of the pieces that go together to make a car. And I think the Dream Theater is a lot like that because we have all these pieces that kind of move around, but there's always this core. The way I put it to Lee when we were talking on our text thread is that more simply, the whole of Dream Theater is greater than the sum of its parts. Yep, I totally agree with that. When we look at our introduction to prog metal, which if you're just now coming to the podcast, that's season one, episode six, we talked about where prog metal kind of started to happen. And we drew a dividing line in the late 1980s, somewhere around like Metallica's Master of Puppets in 1986. Most people in the industry really define Operation Mindcrime by Queensryche in 1988. But the band that we know as Dream Theater had already come together. Actually, Lee, did they even perform? Did they do shows? Yes, they did do a few shows as Majesty. Yeah, so we had like in 1985, the general players come together under the moniker of Majesty that was originally comprised of John Petrucci on guitar, John Myung on bass, and Mike Portnoy on drums, when they were all students at the Berklee School of Music in Boston. But before I get ahead of myself, I want to touch on a few things that are still interesting to me personally as someone who's been a fan for a while. First, when I think of Dream Theater, I automatically think of Jordan Rudess and James Labrie as being part of Dream Theater, but they weren't always part of Dream Theater. They came along later. Right. While they never released an album under their first name of Majesty, there was a collection of demos from those early years that was released by Mike Portnoy's vanity label called Yitzy Jam, which is, incidentally, Majesty backwards. Back then, filling on keyboard duties was Kevin Moore, and the vocals were done by Chris Collins, though he would leave shortly after recording that. I don't know where you can actually get a copy of that. It was eventually released as something called the Majesty Demos, but 
I don't know where you can buy that. I've tried to get it myself. It is on YouTube. So if you search for the Majesty demos, you'll definitely find it. Let's take a quick listen to that here. One thing that jumps out at me listening to Majesty in the early days, I don't necessarily know if it's good or bad, but the mix is very different than what we associate with Dream Theater these days. Well, it sounds pretty straight ahead. I mean, as a guy who doesn't have any background in Dream Theater, I hear that and I think, yeah, Long Island band. Yeah. It just sounds like, you know, kind of straight ahead rock and roll. If you find interviews with them about the early days, they spent a lot of their times, weekends and evenings in the practice rooms at Berkeley doing covers of Rush and Iron Maiden and Metallica. And that's what that sounds like to me, is mm-hmm. a band that's kind of learning their way and feeling their way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Metallica was a sound, that early Metallica yep. especially, that came to mind. And when I was sitting down trying to think about why, I was like, where is the mix focused? And this goes back to what we talked about with Jeff Vicente in his episode. The mix is focused on the snare drum. Yeah, The mix is focused on guitars. What I associate now is that even though it's not effusive, there's much more bass and kick drum in the mix these days. It's much more robust. I definitely think they still focus a lot on Petrucci, right? But it's a more balanced sound. This was very, very snare and and cymbal and guitar focused. Yeah, I agree with Craig. It feels like a Long Island band sitting in a bar. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Straight ahead. And they were a Long Island band, right? Yeah. So eventually the band was sued by another band for using the name Majesty, so they switched it to Dream Theater. Where they got the name Dream Theater is another one of those internet myths. And the one that I like the most is that Mike Portnoy's dad gave them the idea for the name Dream Theater because it was a name of a a local cinema in Monterey, California. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't really care. I just like this story. I gotta say... That is absolutely the best name for a band I have ever heard in my I life. I agree. <laughs> because of all the connotations it brings up in the back of your mind. I agree. And especially as we look at some of the content that this band has produced. Yeah. Maybe because it was my gateway drug into Dream Theater. I always go back to Black Clouds. Right. But you just think about the imagery that was evoked on that album. Even in Systematic Chaos and Images and Words, they are a theater of the mind. Yeah. They just bring a lot to it. And yeah, I totally agree. Their first album is Dream Theater. was called When Dream and Day Unite. It was released in 1989 and featured Charlie Domenici on vocals, but he soon left as well. This track is The Ones Who Helped to Set the Sun from the album When Dream and Day Unite. It's kind of like Getty Lee, but your thumb's on the LP. Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. (laughs) It definitely has a Rush feel to it, doesn't it? As Lee was just talking about, you can tell this is a band that was doing Rush covers. 
heavily influenced by Rush. They're figuring it out. Yeah, so wrapping up the intro and giving people a little bit of background, even on these first albums, we find a lot of the long, winding solos we're used to. In bits and pieces, not as frequently as we see it now. Uh, There's a lot of virtuoso playing. As we've heard in these samples, a fair amount of the frenetic pacing that Dream Theater can be synonymous with, and a very guitar-forward sound. Although, you'll see over the first couple of releases that Myung's bass comes further and further up in the mix. The background is important because it sets the stage for what comes after. My gateway into Dream Theater is the song that I think a lot of people's gateway is, Pull Me Under. Okay. And that's the one song that got a ton of airplay. What year did Pull Me Under come out? 92. It's their second album, Images and Words. And there's a pretty big difference in the sound between the first album and this one, mostly because that's where James Labrie shows up. But the mix has a much better balance, and this really locks in the sound for future albums. This is Pull Me Under from Images and Words in 1992. And this album does really, really well. For that kind of music to have just keyboards in general mm-hmm. and something that's able to punch through is admirable, you know, because they're thinking about it as a five piece from the beginning. You know, they don't just want to be a power trio or a power four piece. Mm-hmm. They're including a, a keyboard in their vision for the band. Yeah, that's true. Especially on the intro of that song, you hear the chugging sound and Labrie's song structure. We can talk about that as well. but. That sounded like an Alice in Chains song to me. Yeah. Right? We're at the beginning of that grunge metal era. Hmm. Alice in Chains was really hitting their peak right there in 1992. They've got Facelift coming out, Sap, Dirt comes out, Jar of Flies. Yeah. Very big, influential albums. At the same time, we've got the grunge scene coming out of Washington um, with Nirvana. I believe in 1992, that would have been the album Incesticide. So there's this sound that was very popular on MTV, which was still playing music and very influential. Pull Me Under comes out and sounds very much like that, but the rest of the album doesn't. Hmm. Interesting. Which may be why this was their only single, because it just kind of happened to hit while the iron was hot. The rest of it sounds a lot more like the third album, Awake. Let's play a clip off that album. This is Erotomania. These longer, more complex pieces are what I come to love about this band. But during the mixing of this album, Kevin Moore decides to leave the band over creative differences. Mm -hmm. I think Dream Theater is hard on keyboardists. Well, it's gotta be. There's not a lot of room for them. That's exactly the problem. That'll change when Jordan Ruta shows up. But yes, during this early period, that's absolutely correct. And there is some turmoil here for the band. Derek Sherinian joins for Falling Into Infinity and a tour. 
And there's also an EP in here, Change of Seasons. Now, for the next part to make sense, you have to remember that the Liquid Tension Experiment albums show up during this time. Jordan Rudis is a part of Liquid Tension Experiment. And Portnoy and Petrucci start thinking about Jordan Rudis as a potential next generation for Dream Theater. Here's a quote from the Prague Magazine article from September 2019 about the making of Scenes from a Memory. This is a quote from John Petrucci. Moving on without Derek was a ruthless thing for us to do, but in the back of our minds we were wondering what it would be like with Jordan and the band. Telling him of our decision was very difficult because there was no reason for the firing, but sometimes you just have to make tough calls, and looking back, I know this was the right one. That's one thing that this band has always proven is that they are pretty relentless about going for the sound that they want, regardless of what it takes. I agree. So there's churning between Kevin Moore and Derek Sherinian on the keyboards, and I think it's a very deliberate turn of direction to get Jordan Rudis as a keyboard player in the band. Yeah, Rudis as a keyboard player, he's kind of a unicorn. What do you mean? I don't know how else to say it. It's fascinating to listen to him, and I I listen to a lot of his, like, uh, I I fanboy on Jordan Rudis. Okay, I'll just say it. Yeah. He spends a lot of time crafting a sound Mm -hmm. that are designed to punch through, and he plays with a style that's kind of guitar-y a lot of bands and he's almost like a second guitar player he just happens to be playing a keyboard you just hit on exactly my biggest beef with it jordan rudess while he is absolutely a virtuoso and they find places and i wonder if this has to be like a force of personality thing where like inside the band when they're not playing a show and they're just having beers in the back hall jordan's like you got to find a spot for me man he gets his moments but a lot of time he is exactly what you just said he's like another guitar sound Yeah, we talked about this in the What is Prog Metal episode. Prog Metal keyboardists have two roles to fill. One is that distorted, heavy sound that mimics a guitar. But Jordan Rudis brings a whole dimension in that I think was deliberate for Dream Theater. You got to remember that this starts as a Berklee School of Music band sitting in the practice rooms, doing Rush, Metallica. Mm -hmm. And Jordan Rudis is out of Juilliard. Mm. Jordan Rudis has a heavily classical background. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. He was a childhood prodigy on the piano at the age of nine. And I think you hear that difference when he joins Dream Theater. Here's an example. This song is Blind Faith from the album Six Degrees of Inner Turbulence. Now, for me, that's a perfect example of the two faces Jordan presents in this band. Mm -hmm. It may be hard to hear, but in the first half of that, during the heavy guitar, Jordan is doing a distorted harmony line on top of the guitar, most likely with a synth. And then contrast that between the beautiful classical piano break and the string pad. Mm -hmm. It feels like Heart of the Sunrise. Yeah. Super heavy guitar and then a neat piano break. That is my favorite Yes song, by the way. We've kind of jumped around a little bit, but is anything else in the middle that you think that the listeners need to know, like maybe between mid-90s and mid-2000s about Dream Theater as a band and their sound before we kind of get into the post-Portnoy era? I think Metropolis 2, Scenes from a Memory, is probably their most important album to their career. 
There had been a lot of thrashing with the label on Falling Into Infinity, and for scenes they had the concept early, they recorded it and basically went to the label and said, this is what we're giving you, take it or leave it. It's a very interesting concept album about a man named Nicholas that goes through hypnotherapy and learns he was a woman in another life and murdered as part of a love triangle between two brothers. The album performs really well with the fan base and critics and gets them out from under outside influence and outside producers. Here's a track from Scenes from a Memory. This is The Dance of Eternity. Between Scenes from a Memory and Black Clouds and Silver Linings, that's six albums. And I think these six albums, they are absolutely the juggernaut in prog rock metal. They are my favorite band, bar none, during this period. And I think the best album in this period is Octavarium. What is so special for you about Octavarium? Dream Theater can kind of move back and forth between prog metal and prog rock. And I think certain albums are more prog metal and certain albums are more prog rock. Like, Systematic Chaos, to me, is absolutely prog metal. Train of Thought has a lot of prog metal in it. But to me, Octavarium is the peak of their prog rock, even though it has some metal on it. The song itself, Octavarium, is such a well-written song. It's become so well-known, there's covers of it by university orchestras on YouTube. Hmm. So, I'm going to play... Do you want elevator music, Lee, while we wait for you? (laughs) 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 okay found it this is sacrifice sons from the album octavarium I actually came into Dream Theater with Black Clouds. Okay. And that just knocked my socks off. And I was coming into them because I knew who they were. I was really getting into Prague at the time. And I had this kind of back and forth. I've talked about it before with Black Clouds and Silver Linings and the Whirlwind by Transatlantic because the connective tissue for me was Portnoy. And then I went back and I discovered albums like Octavarium and actually Systematic Chaos was a big one for me for a long time. But I've had to come to the rest of the discography over time. But the important thing of that story for me is that I was coming right as Mike was leaving the band. And so I kind of knew that everything future is going to be different. So it's kind of, quote unquote, safe to go back and look at this back catalog, almost like an archaeologist or a musical historian kind of thing. Here's like a period of time. It's in the can. This is all you're ever going to get kind of thing. And I think that Black Clouds is an amazing album in its own right. Yeah, I agree. Let's play something off that. This is the Shattered Fortress off Black Clouds and Silver Linings. (laughs) 
you know, one of the things we were talking about that I picked up with Dream Theater, I was already listening to Arion at the time. So like this whole concept of having concept albums was interesting to me and figuring out that Dream Theater did a number of them like Octavarium, like Scenes from a Memory. We were talking before we started recording whether or not we want to call Black Clouds a thematic album or a concept album. But there's a number of these that pop up. But I think maybe Octavarium is their best, like their pinnacle for me too. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because they put such constraints on themselves with that album. Everything about that album was very constrained. They were doing what they were doing for a specific purpose and finding how to be creative within those confines. At least for me, creatively, confines and chains and limitations often bring out more creativity than being open-ended. Interesting. Because Sacrifice Sons, for me, really encapsulates that frenetic, edgy feeling that you and I talk about with Dream Theater. That's fair. I just think that, like, if we think about what that album is, and I don't know if you want to talk too much about the bigger concept that that album is, because it's very meta, but I think that that's a good constraint for them. Okay, that's a fair comment. Octavarium is their eighth album, and they were looking to do something a little more unusual. So there's eight songs on this album, written in the natural keys from F to F, an octave. And then there are five smaller interlude pieces or sounds that are a half step above the last song. And those 13 pieces together make up a chromatic scale. Hmm. And the title track, Octavarium, is a multi-movement piece that's 24 minutes long, a multiple of eight. There was a lot of thought put into this album as a concept piece in a very subtle way. I absolutely agree with you, and that's why I was thinking it was so impressive to me, because they took those constraints and still found a way to write a song like that. Yeah, okay. I just think it's really, really impressive. To I me. agree with that. I know that I couldn't do that. I know I can't do that. As we talk about concept albums in Dream Theater Land, I think it's important to mention a unique one called the 12-Step Suite, which is this meta-concept album that spans multiple albums and chronicles Mike Portnoy's journey through recovery of alcohol addiction. And it's unique for me because it's not something that appeared just in one record. It was something that happened over the course of multiple albums, and then you can cobble it together but it required a commitment that was multiple albums long from a listener's perspective. Yes. And that clip we played, Shattered Fortress, that's from the 12-step suite. With the samples that we've played, I think we were getting a feel for that, what I'll call Portnoy era of Dream Theater. Yep. I want to just say this. That feels disingenuous to me because I think it glosses over the fact that Jordan Rudess had come in, James Lippery had come in. They're all part of that band during that period. But when we look back on that period, People these days just go, oh, that was the Portnoy era. And I think that that contributes to something that I said at the top of the show. If I think of Dream Theater, I just immediately think that James Labrie and Jordan Rudess were always there, but they weren't. Mm. Right. But it's just that uh, Portnoy was kind of a seismic event. He is the bigger than life personality, man. Well, listen to this from the same September 2019 Prague Magazine article. Meanwhile, closer to home... The rest of Dream Theater also agreed to Petrucci and Portnoy becoming the band's leaders, putting an end to the so-called fake democracy. Establishing that somebody was in charge helped to smooth out the fights, Portnoy explains. Until then, we had wasted a lot of time with people campaigning their ideas to the others. John and I had a very clear vision of what our next record should be, and everyone was happy to respect that. Wow, that hits on so many other things. Hmm. It does. As I said, I came in, Black Clouds and Silver Linings was the last album with Mike Portnoy. And as legend goes, they were in some kind of hiatus after that album. 
And Mike had wanted to take some time off and just kind of rest and relax. But the band was eager. I think they were wanting to either go into the studio and record. I think it was go and record immediately. I don't think they wanted to tour. Yeah. And Mike was asking, hey, I, I have committed my life to this band for the last 18 years nonstop. I need some time. And the band said, no, we want to keep pressing on. And so there was a schism and Mike left the band. Mm-hmm. Since then, I don't know that there was ever a public feud But it was very clear that there were unresolved feelings about how things ended. And some people have come out and they've been like, yeah, Mike has this overinflated sense of worth. He had a big ego. But what I was just thinking about in that quote, we also see this kind of shift of it feeling much more like John's band. (laughs) Yeah. And that quote out of that article about it being, Mike and John kind of balancing each other. And then you take Mike out of the equation and it's just John's band. Yeah. That's very interesting. I I hadn't heard that quote before, but it resonates. It it aligns with a lot of my experience. Yeah. And I have a different take on the Portnoy exit because Portnoy has quit more than once. Mm -hmm. I think Portnoy's ego can get in the way of some saner decisions for this band. And he was playing with Avenged Sevenfold Mm -hmm. because the Rev had died. And he very graciously volunteered to go help them finish out their tour. And in this interview that'll come a little bit later with Eddie Trunk, he talks about how much fun it was to hang out with Avenged Sevenfold, how they'd sit around and talk, go out to dinner, things like that. And the thought of going back into Dream Theater after Tony said 18 years of this Mm -hmm. was he really wanted to see the band take a five-year hiatus. Mm. Yeah, this is the story. And the band jumped right in and said, no, we're going right back in the studio. And he said, then I quit. I think at first the band was horribly devastated. Jordan even said he sat on the steps outside the studio and cried because he thought this is over. And then he and Petrucci and the rest of the band sat down and said, this isn't over. We'll go get another drummer. But Portnoy also, in the Eddie Trunk interview, really made some disparaging comments about when Dream Theater ends their tour, they take all the roadies and the crew out for a really nice dinner. And he made references to one member of the band would just sit there with his headphones on and not talk to any of the roadies or anybody else. Just off in his little quiet corner. Hmm. Now, if you're a dream theater aficionado, you know that that's John Young, Because John Young is this very quiet, very shy guy. So those three personalities, Young, Portnoy, Petrucci. Young is very quiet, laid back. Portnoy is this outsized huge, larger-than-life kind of guy. And Petrucci, I think, is this middleman. And Tony's exactly right. You take Portnoy out of that when he quits, and it's Petrucci's band. Right. I think Myung is fine to say, yeah, it's your band, John Lead. Have at it, man. You're doing a great job. And I think that change really reflects in the later albums. So Portnoy's left. It's time to find another drummer. And they go through a pretty public audition process that they videotape in a special called The Spirit Carries On. So there, you can watch the documentary on YouTube, I'm pretty sure. Like, I've got it on DVD because I have the deluxe edition of the album. Mm-hmm. When they're doing the auditions, one of the songs that they have them audition with is Dance of Eternity, which is notoriously hard. It's their black page. Yeah, absolutely. It's so hard that there was at one point where Portnoy did this walkthrough of the tempo and the changes, and even he struggled with it, trying to walk someone else through it. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I remember for sure Petrucci walked away from was like, oh my gosh, Mike Mangini's like a robot and he hit it all. And I think that that's what they were looking for. Interesting. Sure. Because that's exactly how he sounds. Like a robot. 
I think it's better now, but for the first couple of albums with Mike Mangini, and Mike, if you ever happen to listen to this, no offense to you, man, you are an amazing fucking drummer. But I think that you had shackles on you for the first couple of Dream Theater albums because of that. He was a lonely robot. There's a lot of people on YouTube that try to frame this as hating Mangini versus Portnoy, and it's not that. I just want to be clear. What Dream Theater is asking Mangini to do now is just odd compared to where they came from. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. This is Mike Mangini playing the verse from On the Backs of Angels from a dramatic turn of events. Kick is exactly following the guitar line. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it is just a quarter note hi-hat with the snare on the third beat and also a pickup. That's really a pretty straight-ahead rock beat. But now listen to Portnoy play something like Lines in the Sand. Portnoy's going around every bar and doing a repeated snare and tom pattern. And then he throws in that double tuplet at the end of the bar. And it's fascinating to listen to. Hmm. And that's why I loved Portnoy in Dream Theater, because he is so inventive. He really thinks out of the box as a drummer. Mm -hmm. Like Tony said, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Portnoy could fit in, but he could still make it a solo instrument. Hmm. And I don't think Mangini does that. And, you know, one of the other things that I, I pick up with Mike Portnoy, I've also heard this in Prepare Your Bingo Cards with Ed Warby uh, that plays with Arion a lot. It's, it's very, very precise, but it still sounds like a human. You're saying Portnoy or? In Portnoy. Yeah, so I agree with that. Mangini sounds like a drum machine. Yeah, I think sometimes Mangini does sound like a drum machine. On these albums, I think that's important to clarify. Because he is a seriously talented drummer. And again, Mike, if you're listening to this, you have mad skills, dude. We love you. We love you. I think with five albums now with Mangini, it's by design. That's what the band is looking for. Oh, it's business. I mean, that goes to the whole Dream Theater Inc. thing, right? We're a band that is a business. We want this particular widget to come into our business to make it better. The methodical approach telling Derek Sherinian that he's no longer part of the band feels exactly the same. If you watch the documentary about how all the different drummers I think they were trying to be like intimate, but it actually felt kind of uncomfortable in that documentary, watching them sit around and like pick apart people like Marco Miniman in like this very like, oh, well, he didn't do this or did do that. <laughs> and it's Marco Miniman. Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. So does he sound that way in later albums? I think it's getting better, don't you, Tony? I think so. I think he's loosening up. But let's play another track off this album. This is Outcry from a dramatic turn of events.
if we go in the line of the business, Mike Portnoy leaves the band. I think that they hired Mike Mangini. Again, go watch the documentary to see it for yourself. To sound as much like Mike Portnoy as possible, hmm. especially on the classic tracks like Dance of Eternity, A Nightmare to Remember. These are notoriously hard songs that Mike was a writer on, right? And so I think they hired someone from a business perspective to sound as much like that as possible when they went on tour. And slowly, one album after another, they've been weaning people off of that sound and into a more Mike Mangini natural sound. I think it goes even further than that. I think they're weaning people off the old Dream Theater sound and going for a new Dream Theater sound. So we're talking about how Mangini sounds on albums. How about live? Was he let loose at all i don't know i haven't seen them live with mangini have you lee yeah i've seen dream theater now probably 12 times wow once per step and i think three of those have been with mangini now i don't notice a big difference between his sound live and studio hmm. the one guy in dream theater that really sounds different live is labrie mm-hmm. wow labrie's voice is great i love labrie but live he just kind of shows his age a little bit he's a little flat on some of the higher parts Oh, kind of the opposite. I thought you were going to say that he's much better live. Kind of like willing him up there, you know what I mean? <laughs> Come on, you, you can hit it, you know. It's interesting that you say that, Lee, because I've never seen Dream Theater live. But on the Arion Theater Equation album, he came back to reprise his role for part of that. And I have the live DVD of that. And I had the same thought. I thought maybe it was just he didn't get the Arion material. But if it's the same thing with Dream Theater, that's really interesting. I think age is hardest on vocalists. You start losing that high end early. I mean, age is hard on all of us, don't get me wrong. You know, one of the reasons Alex Lifeson stopped touring was because he has such bad arthritis now. Oh, no. And the last thing I'll say about them live is, if you want to appreciate John Myung as a bass player, go watch them live. He is incredible live. This is live dream theater from the album Chaos in Motion. This is Panic Attack. end up finding after mike leaves the band is lee and i i think we coined it over the cube wall one day we call it dream theater inc it becomes very apparent that dream theater is we're going to release an album and get a bunch of money out of you and then we're going to go on two or three times for that album and get a bunch of money out of you and then we're going to have a bunch of new merch each time and we're going to get a bunch of money out of you it became like a business of the machine it was very obvious and that started to like sour Dream Theater for me because it, it felt a little bit less about the music. No fault to them, I guess. I mean, this is essentially small business owners and this is their business. Well, that's how bands make money, right? Yeah, but this is at a different level. It's at, Yeah, it's at a different corporatized level. I really started feeling this after they put out a dramatic turn of events. Mm -hmm. So they announced the tour and it didn't have a Denver date. And so I bought a ticket to fly to Arizona to see them. I go to see the band. I come home. It was great. Mm -hmm. And they do two more tours on a dramatic turn of events. And both the second and third shows come through Denver. Mm. And that's when I was like, wait a minute. How many bands do you know that do three tours on one album? 
it really feels like they're milking something to me. Yeah. And you go to the merch table. I mean, it's t-shirts, mm-hmm. but it's keychains and hats. And now it's John Petrucci bourbon. And beard gel. <laughs> when I went to see The Astonishing in Denver, do you guys know the story? No. Mm-hmm. The Nomax are the machines that are flying around making sure no one listens to music. And there was a giant Nomax sitting in the lobby where you would take a picture of a selfie with your girlfriend or whatever, and they would be shown on screens in the back. And I was like, did I go to a Broncos game? <laughs> it's like Disney World. This feels like a Rockies game to me. It's just, <laughs> it's gotten to be less about the music to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, get I guess that's the best way to say it. And I think that leads exactly to the astonishing. I think we've already filled our bingo cards a couple of times in this episode, but you know, the astonishing came out and in the lead up to the astonishing, I think the band members have to over-promote your album a little bit, right? But I'm hearing like these stories of like this big sci-fi tale, and it's got all these characters, and I'm an Arion fan. You are? I've been doing this a long <laughs> time. When someone starts setting up an album this way, I have expectations, right? And then it comes out, and I'm like, wait, there's like a cast of eight, ten characters? At least. And they're all Labrie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And I'm like, wait, there's a better way to do this, guys. Yeah. I think that this album, in multiple ways, could have been better served with more of an Arion influence. The story's a little hokey, but I think the story's fine and serviceable. Mm-hmm. I think that it would have been better to cast it. Yes. Different vocalists for each of the roles. It could still be a Dream Theater release. Maybe you just cast James Labrie as like the central character who he gets most of the vocals. But I think it was Lee put it on the text thread the other day. Let Aryan Lucasen produce the fucking record. <laughs> he knows what to do with this. Yeah. It had so much potential and then just fell flat for me. Yeah. I have a little bit of a conspiracy theory. Rudess had recently been involved with Arian. Labrie had just rekindled his relationship with Aryan Lucasen doing things like the theater equation. I think that there was maybe some appetite to do stuff like that. I think maybe the core of the idea, because I went back and I did look on like the Dream Theater forums and stuff like that. And it does appear that John Petrucci was talking about the concept of this album a little bit before this. So maybe the timing doesn't work out precisely right. But I would love if you were a listener and you're one of those weird stalkery internet sleuths, go prove me wrong or prove me right. But I think that there is some kind of intersection of Arion with this album, because coincidence seems a little too much for me. That's where you and I have to differ pretty radically, is I don't think this album has anything to do with Arion. Everything has something to do with Arion Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Petrucci had this in his head to do for at least three years prior. So I don't think the album has anything directly to do with Arion. But I do think... Portnoy leaving has a lot to do with it, Mm. because I think Portnoy would have said no way, or it would have sounded entirely different. Brutus and Petrucci pretty much wrote the entire album, and you can really hear that in the writing, I think. I don't like this album particularly. I give it a C. I think the music is good, because I do think there's a lot of times that Jordan Brutus's influence really stands out. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. But there are two things, I think, that could have happened that would have made this album tons better. One is, get somebody else to write the libretto. Hmm. Because the libretto is just too comic book for me, Mm -hmm. with like Lord Nefarious and Faith and the Resurrection at the end. (laughs) But number two, I agree completely with Tony on this. Get other vocalists to do the cast member parts. 
And Dream Theater proved the point in a later re-release by having Lizzie Hale sing along with James Labrie on one of the songs. This is Our New World from The Astonishing featuring Lizzie Hale. And I put a crossfade in just to keep the clip short. Now, it's very clear there are two different cast members singing a male and a female part of the story. Yes. On the original album, Labrie sings the whole thing. And you can't tell the parts. So if you're not sitting there with a libretto in your hands, going, oh, wait, um, now it's Faith, now it's Gabriel, what? (laughs) It makes such a difference. You know, you wonder if they could ever go back and revisit that album and do it differently. The first time I heard that, I got goosebumps up and down my back because that, that's exactly the way that album should have sounded. Hmm. I remember we were at work when this album came out. Lee and I both got it. We were listening to it. And I immediately went to complaining about the cast. <laughs> Why on earth didn't they do this Arion style with the cast? Yeah. And then it was like, I don't remember how long afterwards. And Lee comes to work one day and is like, did you hear Our New World? It's got Lizzie Hale on it. Yeah. I went and listened. I was like, oh my God, this is. That's what it was supposed to sound like. This yeah. is it. Nice. I think that somewhere on that album, we've got to get Floor Janssen. Yeah. I've got a roster of people that fill out this record, like Tobias Sommet would be great in a couple of those parts. Like, (laughs) You know, you could listen and follow the story. Yeah. I don't think we're as far apart as you think we are on this album. And I do wish Arian Lucasen had produced this. You know what? Here's, I'm going to put a challenge out to the listeners and maybe I'll tweet this. If we have listeners that are so inclined Please get together, work amongst yourself, and do a cover version of this album with a bunch of different vocalists, and let's see what it could be. <laughs> We're going to do our proclamation version of yeah, yeah. Right. The Astonishing. 10,000 yeah. Hands. Yeah. Exactly. That's compelling. Let's see what it could have been. There you go. So the next release is the self-titled. Yeah. The eponymous album, and then after that comes The Distance Over Time. And then we're releasing this episode at approximately the same time that dream theater has a new album coming out of you from the top of the world and i'm feeling more and more disconnected from dream theater as the releases go on it's for various reasons every time there's a release i'm feeling like i've heard this before so there's the first 10 albums then portnoy leaves then you get a dramatic turn of events that was partially written before portnoy's departure and then mangini comes in and he fills in the drums so that album sort of sits in a weird middle ground for me and that's a good album it's not great but it's a good one but then the eponymous album the astonishing distance over time and now a view from the top of the world to me there is a definite flattening that goes on with dream theater where it turns into very repeatable songs and i have a lot more detail about this including examples and including a youtuber that i found that does a really good detailed breakdown of this I'm going to put all of this into a bootleg episode, so listeners keep an eye out for a bootleg in the next couple of weeks that goes into a lot more detail about the latter albums. But what I'd like to close with now is the new album, A View from the Top of the World. 
After listening to it several times, there are some really good tracks on here. Like, for example, Answering the Call. And this song is kind of the mainstay of what they're doing now. And that is not a bad song. I mean, the chorus is really nice. The progressions are nice. But this just seems like a standard rock song. It just doesn't seem Dream Theater to me. Mm-hmm. It's almost not prog to me. Having followed Dream Theater from Images and Words all the way through Black Clouds, I don't buy the albums for these kind of songs. They sound like the mainstay of any really good rock band. Not Nickelback. <laughs> not Nickelback. I Walk Beside You, Build Me Up, Break Me Down, The Bigger Picture, This Is The Life. These rock anthem songs are just not what I buy the albums for anymore. Hmm. They're not interesting to me. No. The latter albums I've bought just to get the longer prog pieces, which they still do, but they're fewer and far between now. I've thought a lot about what I might say about the new Dream Theater record, A View From The Top Of The World. I think that the album itself is probably fundamentally fine. I can't find anything that's just broken about this album. I mean, it's dream theater. That's not really their thing. They're not going to go off the rails. Now, that said, the closest I can come to is that it sounds to me now like dream theater is a band that's trading in nostalgia. There's so many sonic motifs and sonic callbacks to previous dream theater albums or songs and things like that. And for me, I'm not looking for nostalgia. I'm looking for Dream Theater to be a progressive band and push boundaries. If I wanted to hear those songs that I really enjoy, I own those albums. I'll go back and I'll listen to those albums. But that said, that's for me, as someone who's been around Dream Theater for a long time, I do think that this album could serve as a good introductory sampler for people that maybe are new to Dream Theater, and I could say, hey, go listen to this album. You'll get a good sense of what Dream Theater is all about. And if you like that, then I can instruct you on where to go for other albums, a deeper dive into the back catalog. I think the new stuff is good. They still do a couple of long prog pieces with each album, and that's what I look forward to. Overall, I just don't think it's great like it used to be. Does Hey Can Scratch your Dream Theater itch, or is it a different kind of music? Oh, yeah, absolutely. On the prog metal side, for me, they have really filled that gap and just run with it. Yeah. And probably Frost has picked up on the prog rock side Hmm. and taken that to the next level. I think we all agree on the latest Frost album, Day and Age. Yeah. Frost is definitely scratching that dream theater itch. Really? Like, it took me a while to get into that cult, but... I loved Frost at first sight. I think that's because you and I are keyboard players. You know, probably, probably is. but I've never made the connection from Dream Theater to Frost. Oh, I did immediately. That's interesting. Yeah. I listen to Dream Theater from time to time just because you guys like them so much. And it's not like I can't listen to them. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But it's not made it into the main rotation. Interesting. When we interviewed Deck Burke, his audio plastic project, that's actually something that scratches a lot of Dream Theater stuff for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I love it. I. I hope that some of that additional audio plastic material can eventually come out because it'd be awesome. Yeah. This has been fun. Thanks. All right. That was 
a lot. I think we covered a lot of ground. I don't even know if we could ever possibly do all of Dream Theater justice. Right. It's it's a big topic. And hopefully, if nothing else, this conversation was a good fire starter, as it were, to go and explore and, and learn more. So as we wrap up our episode, as we normally do, um, I'll start with you, Lee. Do you have recommendations for where people can or should go next on this journey? I went into a lot of detail about Octavarium. I think that's a really good album. A little bit further back than that is Metropolis Part 2, Scenes from a Memory. And that's such a great storyline and such a good concept album. Those are the two I would recommend. Cool. What about you, Craig? Since I'm not that much of a dream theater aficionado, my recommendation is uh, listen to some of Jordan Rudess's solo work. Uh, one of my favorites is Rhythm of Time. It's got uh, my favorite guitar player on it. Steve Morris is on a couple of tracks. But really, just about any Jordan Rudess uh, solo album can't go wrong. Awesome. My recommendations are, are going to be kind of similar to Craig's. There's this like spawning of other projects that either directly influence Dream Theater or Dream Theater influenced them. And definitely recommend you go explore Liquid Tension Experiment. It's most of Dream Theater and Dream Theater adjacent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really good music there. And then if you can find it, there was uh, John Petrucci and Jordan Rudess solo classical acoustic album. It's called A Night with Jordan Rudess and John Petrucci. I highly recommend that. You might have to go to the YouTubes for that one. I, I lucked into a copy of it at a local record store one time and then we talked about it a couple of times during the episode both myself and lee are taking this opportunity to dive into what we're calling up3 show bootleg episodes about some special topics here and when those come out i think that the listeners will get some additional background as we exit don't forget you can find us on twitter and now instagram at up3 show or you can contact us via email at up3 show at gmail.com if you have feedback about the show if you want to promote something like your local band or something please reach out let us know we'd love to promote whatever you're doing here on the show we definitely want to hear from you if you'd like to show us some support it's easy you can support us non-financially as i mentioned at the top of the show by just liking subscribing promoting the show in that kind of way leave a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts or on our homepage at up3show.podbean.com and also don't forget that now you can support us financially if you're so inclined we have an account on coffee over at ko-fi.com slash up3show and now on patreon at patreon.com slash up3show and we are planning some tiers where you'll be able to get some bonus content out there like extended cuts of the episodes so definitely be checking that out thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time bye bye Hey folks, Tony here. If you made it this far, congratulations. You're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode. As a reminder, we're a podcast about commentary and opinion on prog music. We use samples of music to make our point and to teach others. We make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live. If you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show, please contact us directly so that we can work together.